Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Right, let's make a start then. After uh, we've herded my family of cats out of the room. Okay, so um, this is the second session of a series all about um, for the journey, which is what we've called it. But it's all about kind of practices to help us on the journey we're on as a community. And so today I'm just going to follow pretty much in Steve's footsteps, uh, which is a nice metaphor for the series. Um, I'm going to follow in his footsteps just in terms of, I'm not going to describe any practices. Uh, What I want to do is... Um, just help orientate us a little bit better with in preparation for when we talk about practices because the, the thing is is that uh, when we start talking about spiritual practices or Christian practices like prayer or worship etc um, we can orientate ourselves a bit weirdly towards them uh, and I'm going to unpack the sort of complexity that goes with it in a bit but if we just turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 which is where Steve um, shared quite a lot from so it says, and all of us, without, without any veil on our faces, gaze at the glory of the Lord in a mirror. I'll start that again. And all of us, without any veil on our faces, gaze at the glory of the Lord as in a mirror. And so are being changed into the same image from glory to glory, just as you expect from the Lord the Spirit. So basically the essence of that is as we uh, look, as if we're looking in the mirror um, at the Lord, at Jesus, that we are being transformed. There's something transformational about gazing or beholding or looking at intently, looking towards Jesus. And so, so the idea of being like Jesus or being conformed into the image of Christ as we behold him. And behold him isn't a literal thing, it's a metaphor obviously, so we don't just stare intently at something, we don't stare intently at the Bible, we don't stare intently at our worship CDs or, or a liturgy or anything. It's how we engage with Jesus. So there's an intensity, there's a, a, a deliberate nature to, to beholding him. And again, I'm not going to unpack how we do that, uh, that's for the coming weeks, but it's just that idea, as we engage with Christ in this way, um, that we become more like him. And there's a, a couple of uh, quotes I want to read to you. I've been reading this wonderful book by a guy called David Bentley Hart. Um, and he says this, Knowledge of God comes not from categories of analytic reason, but from the intimate embrace of union in which God shares himself immediately as a gift to the created soul. In terms of, we're not doing anything. It's not somehow we uh, work ourselves up, we achieve some sort of state. But actually, as we create the space, as we create an allowance or a permission for God to come in, he reveals himself to us. Um, Sometimes this is harder, sometimes it's a little bit more fuzzy or more clouded or more difficult. But in essence, all we're doing is we're creating the space for that to occur. And so it takes all the effort out of our, tro- uh, our trying. And this is one of the things I kind of want to deal with when I get to like, how we orientate ourselves to practice. And so there's a couple of metaphors that go along with journey and about sustenance in journey and, and our practices. So one of them in uh, John 4, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to complete it. 
So there's that Matt Redmond song, I don't know if you remember, where it says, um, if my food is to do your will, then I'm hungry. Which sounds great, but if you actually think about it, if you're hungry and the food is to do the will of God, what's occurring in your life? Not the will of God. Um, but that idea of, you know, we, we exist or, or we're sustained by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we're taking a, a physical, visceral metaphor of food that creates sustenance and we're applying it to something spiritual. And so I'm going to kind of just explore these ideas. And so in, um, so in, in sort of beginning then, the central requirement of any spiritual practice is to enable us to behold him, to perceive him ever more clearly, to adore him, as the Apostle John would say, to abide in him. That, that's, the, that's the paramount point of any spiritual practice. If, if we're trying to make ourselves better, if we're trying to, I don't know, earn brownie points with the pastor of the church, if we're, if we're um, trying to create something else other than space for him, then we can't, the practice is, is flawed. We, we should call it something else. And in this beholding, that it would be transformational to us, that it translate into a lived, incarnate expression of Christ, um, an embodied fidelity to the truth that we believe. So we can't have a practice that, that we say transforms us or creates ideas in our head that remain abstract and cannot be incarnated. Jesus was God incarnate. He was the word made flesh. Incarnation literally means enfleshed. It puts on flesh. God described in a body. And, and so everything that comes to us of the spirit needs to have a physical outworking in our life. Okay, it needs to. And there's a wonderful quote in the end of this book. I kind of had it on hand just in case I went there and I have already. So it's right near the end. I love this. Human nature is so constituted that any desire of the soul, insofar as it is not passed through the flesh by means of actions and attitudes which correspond to it, has no reality in the soul. So we can imagine something, we can create something in our minds or in our emotions, whatever, but until it passes through our attitudes and our body, it has no real visceral reality at all. Okay, so what I'm pushing towards is this, is that when we behold Christ, the practices, that's what they're for, to behold Christ, and beholding Christ has to have some sort of outworking in our bodily, visceral, historic lives. And so as we behold him, we perceive of him his self-giving love, his, his nature of pouring himself out. He is God poured out of infinity into finite space. And as he lived, he poured himself out for the marginalised, the ones that are pushed to the, the margins of society, whether that be um, the, the people at the top of the pile. So the way he poured himself out for them sometimes differs from what we think pouring out means. So sometimes he had critique uh, for Herod, for... for um, the Pharisees, etc. Sometimes he had compassion on the Roman centurion. The Roman centurion would also be somebody on top of the pile. He wielded power over other people. Uh, Zacchaeus, the, the tax collector, now this is a notoriously sort of corrupt person, and Jesus had compassion. He poured himself out on behalf of him, but he also poured himself out on behalf of the demonized, the lepers, the people that were pushed out, the women, the children. And so as we behold him, we perceive of him that pouring out nature, and then we start to learn to imitate that. You know, there's a great 
exhortations throughout the New Testament of imitation of Christ. And so we end up living a life of self-giving love. And I'd probably suggest that love that isn't self-giving probably isn't love. And therefore we do embody this fidelity to Christ. Beholding Jesus is not just something we attain to, it's an allowing, a welcoming, a permission to allow his fullness to fill us. That great prayer in Ephesians, that we would know the fullness of his love, filling all in all. And that's not just an individual thing, that's a communal thing. Um, And again, we're going to look at the practice of community as a way of beholding Christ. And so turn me now into 2 Corinthians 4. Okay, I've been uh, reading... 2 Corinthians in my sort of devotional time as well. It's quite a quite a raw book by Paul actually. He spends a lot of time just saying how hard Dunbar is and telling the people he's writing to not to feel guilty too much about that. I think Paul's got ulterior motives there. So Paul in chapter 4 he outlines how much persecution he's faced, the sorts of persecution that he's encountered, uh, very eloquently by the way. And then he says this, For this reason we don't lose heart. Even if our outer humanity is decaying, our inner humanity is being renewed day by day. This slight momentary trouble of ours, which is like the understatement of the century, this slight momentary trouble of being shipwrecked several times, being flogged, being beaten, being imprisoned, uh, being left for dead, etc., etc. This slight and momentary trouble of ours is working to produce a weight of glory, passing and surpassing everything, lasting forever. For we don't look at the things that can be seen, but at the things that can't be seen. After all, the things you can see are here today and gone tomorrow, but the things you cannot see are everlasting. And there's this wonderful kind of idea of beholding, and maybe it's not, um, you know, Jesus isn't stood here that we can stare at him, which might make him feel awkward. A group of people just staring at him, I don't know. Um, But the point is this, is that beholding Jesus isn't just something we do when we're feeling nice and spiritual. You know those odd mornings, I don't know if you get this way, you wake up just apparently early and you've had a great great night's sleep and it's before 7 o'clock and the house is quiet and the sun's shining and the birds are singing and you feel, yes, I can be spiritual. Uh, and, and then you, you have, you know, because you hear these like preachers or pastors or writers say, you know, like, well, you know, at 6am I get up and I have an hour in the Word and then I have an hour praying and then I have a, I don't know, an hour reading something else and an hour fasting. And, and they have all this amazing time before most people have actually got up or actually feel civil. Um, but it, it's about whatever comes our way, whatever the terrain of life, if we're going to carry on the journey metaphor. Whether it is that easy walk in a park, or whether it is through the, the treacherous valleys, that Paul says, like, what gets them through is the beholding. That's what sustains them. It's the beholding of Christ. And however that comes. Because when we behold Jesus, it changes our perspective of what's actually going on. And it acts as a corrective. Now, this is really important. When we behold Jesus, it acts as a dialectic. It acts as a dialogue. It's not just a one-way street of us just uh, looking at him. But it acts as a corrective to where we are in life. So sometimes it changes our perspective. And sometimes we hear the voice of God or we feel, for want of a better phrase, that there's a corrective in how we're going about. Um, Or how we see or perceive our life in particular or this phase of life. So I always behold him. There's a transformation in who we are and how we act and how we live, but there's also a transformation in how we perceive where we are in life. Um, and sometimes we want to 
make this all rosy. Uh, but sometimes we do face incredibly difficult situations in our life. And it's not enough to say, oh, Jesus will have the glory in this, or some sort of vapid vacuum of spiritualization, which, by the way, I absolutely detest when I hear Christians say it now. Um, but actually, it changes our perspective. We start to learn different things. So we learn how, maybe it might be how transient life is, how life is actually vapor. There is no, there is no rhyme or reason sometimes. Bad stuff happens. But we might perceive that Jesus, beyond everything, is the ground of our being, that we have life. We're actually breathing in this moment, and that is a gift in itself. And sometimes the stripping back of everything else, when we're going through a rough um, season in life, we might just discover all life is gratuitous, all life is benevolent. The fact that we live and move and have our being is enough. So, beholding. It transforms us. It should transform how we live. It should point us towards Jesus and it changes our perception, our perspective and acts as a corrective. Um, beholding is integral for sustenance within living life or being on this journey, regardless of where we're at in this journey. And what we've painted over um, the Barnabas sort of uh, series was actually, if you, if you have a vision, if we have a vision as a community that we want to embrace everybody... that you are going to encounter some incredibly different and difficult people and difficult situations to embrace. And there are no four-step programs that are going to help you embrace um, you know, the, the, the rowdy drunk who's on the streets because he was in Afghanistan and now he's got PTSD and he has incredibly violent tendencies. You can't have church policy that copes with that. Likewise, um, and this seems to be a real taboo in, in sort of Western culture, but how do you deal with the paedophile in a community? But if you say that this community is open for all, then it either is open for all, and either the love of God does work for all, or we're lying. And so there are going to be incredibly difficult situations that we come to, people that rub us right up the wrong way. And so we need to know that there is something that's going to sustain us through that beyond our ability to be a cohesive community. Because those things will be tested. <clears throat> and somehow Jesus managed it because he had Matthew, the tax collector, in his core team. And he had Simon the Zealot in his core team. Zealots hated tax collectors. They made a, a point of killing them and somehow Jesus in this small group of 12 held those together and I have an inkling that when he sent them out two by two that it was Matthew and Simon the Zealot that went together um, I think Jesus can be cheeky like that so we exist by, by beholding him by living off his every word if, if uh, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me so I want to look at some of the complexity that goes with this beholding, with these spiritual practices, and how it can work as an encouragement or a corrective. Now, when I say corrective, sometimes we feel that's like a critique or a negative thing, like to be corrected is something bad. Even when we read it in Hebrews where it says God disciplines those he loves, he's like, yeah, let's, just, let's just haze over that verse a little bit because I'm not sure what we mean by discipline because all of my reference points for discipline or correction 
have negative punishment connotations. Um, so I just want to explore this a little bit as well. All practice should bring us to encounter and behold Jesus. Um, and this acts as a dialogue. So all of our spirituality is actually a dialogue. It's not one-way traffic from us to God or one-way traffic from God to us. One thing I've discovered uh, recently, as I've been reading um, more broadly, all of these kind of academic theologians, they never just write stuff. They always write stuff in response to something else. And then they put their stuff out there for peer review. And so, so somebody will say, um, oh, I think this is how we should read Romans, for example, a notoriously difficult book to understand. And then they'll put it out there, and then their uh, colleagues or their peers will write responses to that yeah i think this guy's got it right here but here he completely misses the plot because if you take out you know if you remember the rest of the pauline corpus then this can't mean what he's saying it does there or if you exegete this text very closely yada 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 and it's always in dialogue our spirituality is always a dialogue our prayer life is a dialogue with god but oftentimes it is one-way traffic oftentimes it is just our father who art in heaven yada 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 gabbling on to god and there is no space but actually, when you find kind of these mature saints, all they do is just sit and meditate and, and just be silent. You know, the prophet says, um, you are God in heaven and I'll let my words be few. Because if somebody's got something important to say in this conversation, it's probably God, not me. So it can act as an encouragement and or a corrective. And so some need to hear the, the encouragement Keep on going. Well done, good and faithful servant. Some of us need to hear that. Today, now. And some of us need to hear the corrective of come unto me, you who are heavy laden. Because my burden is not heavy and my yoke is light. So if you are burdened, then you need to hear the correction that it's not mine. It's not of my doing. So come to me and I'll, I'll take that from you. That's the correction of Jesus. So the funny thing about where Jesus says, um, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to complete it. By the way, that and to complete it is really, really important because that's what he says on the cross, isn't it? It is finished. My food is to do the one... The will, the will of the one who sent me. So the context is the woman at the well, uh, which I spoke at uh, it, it from a completely different angle. But So preachers like to use the story. Jesus was human. He got tired. See, he had to relax at the well. And his disciples were like, hey, look at Jesus. He's getting a bit old. So I wanted to take, you know, just stay there, Jesus. We'll go get you some food, mate. And so, but he has this conversation. So he says, I need to rest by this well. And so the disciples say, oh, he's resting. Let's go get him some food. So they trundle off into town. And while they're away, he has this conversation with the woman at the well who's had five husbands and the person that she's, not, she's living with now isn't her husband. And then they come back with the food, which is an amazingly awkward situation anyway because it's a Samaritan town and they're good Jewish boys and there's all sorts of context to that, um, which I'm not going to go into. But they come back with the food. Hey, look, Jesus, we've got some Subway, we've got KFC, we've got McDonald's. We weren't sure what you wanted at this moment in time. And he says, no, no, I'm okay. Because my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. But Jesus, you were hungry. 
yeah, but I'm sustained now, I've eaten. Well, that, did somebody bring him food? They actually have this in the Bible, like, they're confused. Did somebody bring food? Did, somebody, did this lady bring you food? That's a bit weird, Jesus. But it was actually doing the will of the Father that was his food. He wasn't pausing because he was tired, because this comes into the, the ways we misconceive of spiritual practice. He wasn't tired and it was like, oh, I'm all poured out. And then it's going to be a real burden for me to pour out some more into this, 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 this person. No, in the pouring out of himself mm. is also the filling up of himself. Mm. Because we like, our, um, we like our programmatic things or our methodical things. But the problem is it doesn't allow for the complexity of life. As we pour out, you know, if we, um, I love Steve's illustration of pouring out. But the, the limitations of that metaphor are that you can only pour out what's in the jar and it's really difficult to pour into the jar at the same time. Mm. But the thing is, as Jesus poured out, he was being filled. So we like to say about Jesus, well, he was knackered spiritually, so he went up a mountain to pray. And then he got filled up again, and then he was able to come down the mountain and minister to the people. I don't know if you've heard these sermons before. So Jesus was up a mountain, and then he fed 5,000. Jesus was up a mountain, and he fed 4,000. Jesus was up a mountain, and he cast out a demon. So obviously, the way this works is that he has his quiet time, gets really pumped and psyched in the spirit, walks down to the... The, the regular humans and then pours himself out and exhausts himself and then goes back up a mountain to refuel as if he's got batteries that need recharging like that and we use these metaphors of ourselves you know I need to recharge I need to decompress and de-stress but what I want to suggest to you is that if his food was to do the will of the one who sent him healing people was the will of the one who sent him so when he's pouring himself out for people he's also being filled up and this is where we get confused, and it leads to bad, bad practice. So Jesus pours himself out in love, revealing the truth about the Father, the love of God. So as we look at him, and as we imitate him, we pour ourselves out. And in pouring ourselves out uh, towards the Father, let's talk about practices in um, horizontal and vertical for, for a way of categorizing these things. So say like we um, pour ourselves out in stillness and intimacy in prayer. But that pouring out is actually a receiving of truth. And it's a, it's a conflict of metaphors. But the truth is that as we open ourselves up in prayer, we're receiving from God. But actually that's our time of pouring out to him. You know, we have these ideas in the Psalms, you know, I pour myself out to you. You know, I pour out my songs or I pour out my worship or all of these things. But actually we're not, we're not a zero-sum game. If there's only this much in me, and if I empty out here, then I've got nowhere to give it anywhere else. So as I pour out in prayer or worship, then I'm actually receiving truth about him. As I pour myself out in worship, as we sing our songs, we're not emptying ourselves of something. We're confessing in our, in our glory words, our doxology, in our worship, and we're affirming a truth which is an infilling. So as we sing, all good worship songs should be affirmations of truth. You know, they say that, you know, what we sing shapes how we think about God. What we sing shapes our theology. So good worship should be an affirmation of truth. So again, we have this idea that we're pouring out our songs. You know, we sing that. You know, I pour out my praise, I pour out my praise. But actually there's an infilling. And they're not discrete, separate things. Well, I'll, I'll do my pouring out here, and then I'll go over here and I'll get my filling up again. I'll pour out my songs, I'll go get some prayer ministry, I'll pour out my songs, I'll go read the Bible. 
to fill myself up again or I'll go pray for that person and then I'll get prayed for myself. But this is how we think because we've orientated ourselves wrong towards practice. So we, we have this kind of, because it's easy to think of prayer is my time for infilling, even though we're pouring ourselves out, but it's a time of infilling. Or worship is a time of infilling, even though I'm pouring myself out. And then we think, so that's the loving God bit. And then there's the love of neighbour, being the truth. So we have receiving the truth, affirming the truth, and then being the truth. So as I engage with my neighbour, restoring and loving on broken people, to whatever degree they're broken, we're all broken in this room, or telling the truth, sometimes proclaiming the imminence of God's presence. That is his presence loving people, his loving presence in his good creation. And we see, we see all these things in Jesus, that he has prayer, he, he, he describes the truth about God, he confesses the truth about the Father, he reveals the truth about the Father, he restores broken people, he is the truth. And he tells the truth, he proclaims it, and sometimes that is a critique of the powers that be in his day. And sometimes it's the, the thing, the lady at the well, like if you read the story with, with a view of the Old Testament, you know, the five husbands is actually just a, a euphemism for the five gods of Canaan. And he says, but I'm here now. Regardless of your religious, spiritual past, the presence of God is imminent. Regardless of if you're the hated Samaritans, if you're the Roman centurion, if you're the, the high priest in the temple, the presence of God is imminent to everybody. So he tells the truth. And we see that this pouring out of Jesus isn't kind of this emptying where eventually he deflates like a balloon and there's nothing left of him. But at the same time, it's invigorating, it's life-giving, it's vital to him. And we see that even in the way Jesus acts, so this, this, this receiving of truth in prayer, this affirming of truth in worship, this being the truth in restoring people, this telling the truth in proclamation, we see that it works on this loving God, loving neighbour, so it works on the vertical and the horizontal. It works in an ethical, so when, the, how we interact with other people, that's our ethics. And it works on our spiritual level as well, our spirituality. And so as we gaze upon Jesus, as our practices invite us to behold him, we will imbibe these things. So as we lose ourselves, this is a great metaphor, as we lose ourselves by pouring ourselves out in self-giving love in all these different avenues, whether it be towards God or towards neighbour, we find ourselves. That always sounds so weird when Jesus says it. Those who wish to save their lives will lose it, but those who lose their lives for my sake will find it. But it makes absolute sense. If I'm pouring myself out for him, then of course I'm going to discover who I really am. Of course I'm going to discover who I really am, because only he knows who I really am. And if I'm pouring... But if we use the idea of just, I'm emptying myself of everything that could possibly be me. Look, I'm pouring my guts out for the homeless, or for the the wealthy, or the famous, or or in church, in worship, in guitar. I'm, I'm just pouring everything out and there's nothing left of me. Well, those who lose their life will just lose their life. Because we've misconceived what beholding Jesus is. Pouring out and being filled are continuous and concurrent realities. And this is the thing, because we love uh, dualities. Because the way we think, or the way we've been conditioned to think, is that I'm going to fill myself up in prayer, and listening to my worship CDs, and singing my songs, because that's spiritual. And then I'm going to go from the sacred space, which could be church, or my prayer closet, or whatever it is, And then I'm going to do 
engage, I'm going to pour myself out in this separate space with these separate people who evidently aren't sacred. I'm going into the sacred and I'm going to carry that out to these unsacred spaces, these unsacred people. <coughs> and so this is why we find it so hard to shake the idea that church is a place and not the people. Because we're, we're inbuilt, we're conditioned with this duality that there is some, some place that is special, there are some people that are special, so pastors and worship leaders especially, these are sacred people, these are special people, and the people that are in need, we extend our benevolent spirituality towards them. But we dress it up nicely so it's not condescending or patronising, but we live, we exist in this duality. There is a spiritual realm and there is a physical realm. But in God in Jesus cuts across all of that nonsense because he becomes God with us, God imminently here, and he reveals that he's always been here and he always will be here, that this is a good creation, not a perverse and desperate place, but all the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our God, our Lord, and of Jesus Christ, that he permeates creation. I could go on to duality a lot more, but I won't, uh, just for the sake of time. But we could call it Cartesian duality or uh, Platoism, just this idea that there's a separate spiritual realm to, to the physical realm. And the gist of it basically gets to is that everything that's physical is bad, and everything that's spiritual is good, and our, our goal is to escape this life. And you can see it in our weird eschatologies that we build up that... Uh, evacuation theology, you know, we're going to be raptured off this place and this is going to go to hell in a handbasket or Star Trek theology, you know, God, beam me up now, please. Just terrible, terrible, terrible theology, but we're not going there. So, complexity. The problem is that when we, when we want to talk about something, say your TED Talks or good preaching or whatever, to make it intelligible and coherent and easy to understand and assimilate and take away, we have to do it methodically. We look at three points that all begin with the same letter. And this is great because you want to impart something. You want to impart some information to people. And this is a great way for people to remember things. That's why, that's why all presentations, all good presentations, kind of revolve around similar ideas. You have to have like memorable stories and, and all this jazz. Um, and we like things in incremental steps. So we build a case. You know, we build to our conclusion. Um, which is great, I'm not knocking that, I might sound sarcastic, I don't mean to, that's probably just how I sound. Um, but sometimes we'll take this very literally and apply this to how we engage with God, there's a step. So we'll start off in the shallows and then we'll work our way up into the deeps. We even have this kind of prophetic word about, you know, I remember one lady tried to... <laughs> I'm sure she was trying to compliment Nick, uh, but she said she was a baby worship leader. As if, you know what I mean? Like, what a weird backhanded compliment. <laughs> As if there's a graduation. You know, one day you'll attain to, um, you know, lieutenant colonel worship leader. But for now, you're just private worship leader. Um, but we employ this, this to how we engage in practice. Uh, we love to draw out principles. And again, principles are great because it helps us make sense of things. Um, we like to have these points. So we'll take, uh, because we're Christians and we're in a church, we'll take a story out of the Bible and we'll derive some principles of how Abraham did this or how David did this. Well, he, he had you know this and then he did that and then there was this thing. And what we do is, 
And it helps people remember the stories, it helps people derive some sense of encouragement from it, which is great. And it can be helpful. We have to start somewhere, um, and it, it gives us some sort of inspiration. Um, it can also help us to move past, I don't like praying, I'll get really bored really quick. But if there is some sort of um, you know, amazing prayer, warrior, and then, you know, so... Um, George Mueller or something. He did X, Y, Z in his life, and look what he accomplished. He had these orphanages, and they and they they fed them just by faith, you know, in terms of like bread turned up every day. And and so to inspire my prayer life, that's great because I have a really sucky prayer life. And so if I read his stories and and have the the authors boil it down for me, then I've got you know I can start somewhere, and that's really really important. But the problem is, is that it orientates us wrongly. So it, again, this dualism kicks in where it separates. Um, the actual reality, the visceral reality of a life lived and what's going on, what we, what we think is going on in their life to help that happen. So it separates the spiritual into something that's abstract from the physical. So for example, this is a great one. David. You know that bit where David strengthens himself in the Lord? So he's having a terrible day. Right, so he's gone out to war, and he's come back to find that him and his men, all their women, children, livestock, have all been taken by the enemy, some arbitrary enemy. Uh, it never matters in these things because we're spiritualising it, right? So it doesn't matter that they're the Amalekites or anything like that. So he's having a terrible day. So his men want to kill him. So what does David do? Well, he goes to his prayer closet and strengthens himself in the Lord. And then after strengthening himself in the Lord, so this would be the bit where he fills himself up, and then he goes and overtakes the enemy and gets back everything that it was owed to him. And we'll boil that down into these principles like, well, if you're having a bad day, if you feel like the enemy, by which we mean Satan, I guess, is taking stuff off you, so you're not as prosperous as you're supposed to be, or you're um, in bad health, or you're feeling stressed out or whatever, then what you need to do, based on this story is, Strengthen yourself in the Lord. And here are seven ways to strengthen yourself in the Lord. And then you go out and overtake the enemy. But what that story is, is part of David's life. David, since he was very young, has been out in the wilderness. He's a fighter. Not in the sense of he's a trained soldier, but he's been surviving in the wilderness with his God. So he has... All sorts of natural abilities and natural inclinations and a relationship with God that is not just confined to strengthening himself in, this, in the Lord in this one verse. But it's poured out over time and realised over time. It's enacted by him over time. He has known the faithfulness of God through thick and thin all the way up to this point. Prayer is not a panacea for all the things that are wrong. Prayer in and of itself fasting or I don't know singing songs or spending time in the word are not the things that are going to make everything right okay we want to believe that because it gives us a sense of catharsis life is crap right now how is that going to be all right well if I sing a few songs and I say our father then everything's going to be all right and you know what for a moment of time it might actually feel good it might actually make you feel better but the problem is, is the principles are removed from a life. You've made something that's concrete, abstracted in. 
And the life of Jesus is all about making the abstract, the intangible, visceral, incarnating things. And so the ramifications of this are very real. So let me just tell you a little bit more. So I used to work for a Christian charity, okay? So I'm really holy. Um, I used to work for a Christian charity. And I was living in Coventry, working in Oxford. So I drive there every day, and I was a youth worker. Not like a youth worker is in for councils and stuff where you deal with difficult young people. Basically, I was going and preaching to young people and writing a magazine and a website. So that was kind of funky. And, and so I'd work, because it was Christian, I was doing spiritual things. Very good of me. Um, so I'd work through the week, and then I'd work at the weekends, because that's when churches do things. I'd go on missions trips, which were also very groovy. Uh, and then I'd go to conferences in the summer and get to hang out with all the really spiritual people, like, you know, Soul Survivor and all of that. And I was running myself into the ground. Like physically, emotionally, however you want to describe it. I was running myself into the ground. But the problem was, because I was doing something spiritual and pouring myself out in a very spiritual way, what would happen is, is that I'd be tired and sick and people would pray for me because that would be the filling up part. So I'd be pouring myself out and then there'd be a filling up part. And, and you know what? I got healed. Several times. Of just really pointless things like colds and stuff like that. Nothing, nothing earth shattering. To the point where I was so ill for six months, I've never recovered. Okay? I only realised about four years later that that was what people call burnout. And the problem is, is because what we do is we orient ourselves in this way. Well, you pour yourself out and then what you need to do to cure yourself from that exhaustion is to pray and spend time in the Word, as in read your Bible. Notice how it's not behold Jesus, or come into contact with Jesus, or allow Jesus to talk to you and say, what on earth are you doing? You can read daily devotionals till the cows come home and not get anything out of it. They can just be words on a page. I read books where I'm just like, I have no idea what's going on. I've I've read six or seven chapters, and I don't even think a single word's hit my brain. And we can do that to the Bible. But the thing is, we cheer each other on doing these things. You're doing something, you're pouring yourself out, it's great. You know, you, you, you work in a school, that's fantastic. You're feeling tired, well, let's just pray for you. But there's no allowance of Jesus coming in and actually bringing that corrective. My burden is light. Where are your burdens coming from? My food is to do the will of the one who sent me, so I'm always sustained. Why are you feeling so hungry? Because the thing is, we've misappropriated how we do practice spirituality, as in, they're the panacea to all our ills. But we've not allowed it to change how we live and move and have our being. And that's why all practice should point us to Jesus. I got to the point in my job, I was telling uh, Lydia I think, in Luke the other day, that I nearly hit a guy. I was having the worst day, and maybe like David, I should have gone away and strengthened myself in the Lord. But I nearly flattened a guy. That's not like me. And that should have sent alarm bells in me that all of the things I was doing to try and help me through this were just not working. Because what it made me do, I remember doing a conference, and I was like, I'm so knackered. 
like I came back from uh, so one summer basically I had like two days off I think I'd done a speaking tour of Scotland went to Ireland and one of the youth groups I was working with in Ireland a girl's dad had killed himself the day before and the family decided to send the little girl with us on the youth retreat because they thought it'd be better for her to go and the mum and the older sister to deal with everything going on at home and the kids were amazing by the way they just loved on this little girl they didn't make her feel like standing out like a sore thumb they just really included her and i came back from that and i went to china for like three weeks like smuggling bibles with the youth team came back one day off and i went to soul survivor and i was an absolute nervous wreck at soul survivor i couldn't go anywhere i couldn't go into the big tents i couldn't go into anywhere around people and then after that i did a conference and so my solution to this, because I'm a good Christian and I'm doing my strength in myself and the Lord, was instead of sleeping, no, as a good Christian, I find that time in the morning for my prayer time. So what do I do? Well, I know that the, the staff prayer meeting starts at half past six. And then after that's breakfast. And then after that, the conference program starts. So at half past five, I'm going to wake up and pray. Because, of course, that's exactly what I needed at that time. It wasn't to sleep for the extra hour, it was to get up and pray. And, and you know, story goes, I need to hit a guy. <laughs> the problem is, is when we orientate ourselves towards practice, is this major spiritual infilling, because all the time I'm allowed to be outpouring as long as I'm infilling at some time. Because oftentimes we'll treat Sundays like that, won't we? Well, I'll go and exhaust myself at work. I mean, I don't. I, I'm a data analyst, I don't do anything. <laughs> Monday to Friday, and then... Oh, praise God, I get to worship Him, be prayed for, listen to the Word. And I'm all filled again, and I'm filled up from Monday to Friday again. But that's not what it is. Beholding Jesus is a 24-7 thing. It's how we live, orientated towards God. There are not discrete times of infilling and outpouring. We're always outpouring if we're Christians. Because we're always trying to do His will and incarnate Christ. And we're always being filled because we're always trying to do His will and incarnate Christ. It's the same thing. So, when we come into these practices, it becomes a dialogue where Jesus can say, let me take those burdens. And by the way, where did you pick those up from? And sometimes it could be, you're doing all right, you should carry on. You're really good at this. You're really formed for the, you know, Simon, you're great at being a data analyst because you hate responsibility, you're rubbish at it. When you have responsibility, you want to hit people. This is a safe place. practice becomes deeply ingrained it becomes intrinsic to who we are it's not an external thing feeling bad go pray feeling bad uh, let me write you a prescription for time in the words feeling bad let me give you this cd listen to that six times a day four days a week you'll be fine no it becomes how we transform i just want to read you one little story and then i'm going to finish i want to show you how this works anybody heard of richard wombrand he was the guy that founded Voice of the Martyrs. This was a Romanian Christian. A Romanian Christian during the time of communism. He was captured by the communist forces. He was tortured. He wrote a book called Tortured for Christ. And in this book, he outlines visceral things like how to withstand torture. Okay, some of his points include breathe very deeply. At one point... He was drugged to insensibility and beaten. So his mind didn't work. And he was physically in a lot of pain. What does he do 
as a Christian to strengthen himself in that situation. So typically, hear these stories like anybody read the heavenly map, how they memorised chunks of the Bible. Same with Richard Wombrand, he memorised chunks of the Bible, but drugged to insensibility, he couldn't remember his own name, let alone verses of the Bible. And he wrote this, and this is brilliant. God is the truth. The Bible is the truth about the truth. Theology is the truth about the truth about the truth. A good sermon is the truth about the truth about the truth about the truth. It is not the truth. The sermon is not the truth. The Bible is not the truth. Good theology is not the truth. God is the truth. The truth is God alone. Around this truth there is a scaffolding of words, of theologies, of exposition. None of these things is of any help in times of suffering. It is only the truth himself who is able to help. We have to penetrate through sermons, through theological books, through everything which is words, and can be bound up in the reality of God himself. I have told in the West how Christians were tied to crosses for four days and four nights. The crosses were put on the floor and other prisoners were tortured and made to fulfil their bodily necessities upon the faces and bodies of the crucified one. I have since been asked, which Bible verse helped and strengthened you through those circumstances? My answer is this, no Bible verse was of any help. It is sheer cant and religious hypocrisy to say, this Bible verse strengthens me, or that Bible verse helps me. Bible verses alone are not meant to help. We knew Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. When you pass through suffering, you realise that it was never meant by God that Psalm 23 should strengthen you. It is the Lord who can strengthen you, not the psalm which speaks of him doing so. It is not enough to have the psalm. You must have the one about whom the psalm speaks. We also knew the verse, My grace is sufficient for thee, but the verse is not sufficient. It is the grace which is sufficient, and not the verse. Pastors and zealous witnesses who are handling the word as, as a calling for God are in danger of giving holy words more value than they really have. Holy words are only the means to arrive at the reality expressed in them. If you are united with the reality, the Lord Almighty, evil loses its power over you. It cannot break the Lord Almighty. If you only have the words, then you can be very easily broken. The practice, or the practices, are not the sustenance. The one who is the focal point of the practice, the one that we behold via the practice, is the one who sustains. So in conclusion then, all practice should lead us to encounter and behold the Christ. Because it is Christ alone who can sustain us, not the practice itself. And we cannot help but be transformed by this. And I return again to the original quote that I shared with David Bentley Hart. Knowledge of God comes not from the categories of analytic reason, but from the intimate embrace of union in which God shares himself immediately as the gift to the created soul. As we make space for him, he will transform us. He is faithful 
to complete the work that he began within us. Regardless of the circumstance, this intrinsically sustains us. Amen.